Well, good morning. If you want to open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 10, we'll be in verses 14 to 21 today. So amazing grace, how sweet the sound to say to a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. I want to talk about that word, found, today, this morning. As Christians, we recognize that we have been found by someone, that we were in a state of, of wandering, that we were lost in the darkness, but somehow we have found this great light. God has found us as Christians. God is on a mission in the world today to find people, to bring them to himself, and worship them. And that's what I want to talk to us about this morning. You know, there's very often a wrong and ill-conceived image of what God is like. That when God looks at the world, he stands like this. You know, arms folded, looking back, indifferent, cold, and uncaring. But we know the Bible paints God in a very different picture. The Bible paints God in an image like this. His arms are open, they're wide, they're reaching out for humanity. You know, we don't have a God who says, you're not welcome. We have a God who says, I have made the way to welcome you into my arms. See, our God is an evangelist. Our God is one who brings the good news to people. This is something consistent throughout scripture. So I want to talk about this that this morning. The fact that our God is a God who sends good news. That our God is a God who wants to bring people to salvation. I want to read to you from Isaiah chapter 52. It reads, Awake, awake, put on your strength, O Zion. Put on your beautiful garments, O Jerusalem, the holy city. For there shall no more come into you the uncircumcised or the unclean. Shake yourself from the dust and arise. Be seated, O Jerusalem. Loose the bonds from your neck, O captive daughter of Zion. For thus says the Lord, you are sold for nothing and you should be redeemed without money. For thus says the Lord God, my people went down at the first into Egypt to sojourn there, and the Assyrian oppressed them for nothing. Now therefore what have I here, declares the Lord, seeing that my people are taken away for nothing. The rulers wail, declares the Lord, and continually all the day my name is despised. Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore in that day they shall know that it is I who speak. Here I am. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see. The return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste the place of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before it in all the eyes of all the nations. And all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. Now, the Lord spoke to Isaiah there, in Isaiah 52, at a time when they were in captivity. Again, they had rebelled, they were lost in the darkness. They did not deserve God's grace. They were there because they had sinned against him and had abandoned him. But in the midst of captivity, in the midst of their enslavement and their exile, the Lord brings them a message of hope. 
God brings them good news. Again, consistently, the Bible's message is that our God is a God who goes forward and speaks to people. But notice there, though this is the word of the Lord, he speaks through Isaiah. God speaks through people. The books of the Bible didn't just fall from heaven. People wrote these books. Because God wants to communicate his good news through his people. The Bible says we are made in the image of God. And so if God is someone who brings forth good news and tells the truth, would we not expect that his people would do the same? That our mission, like God's mission, would to go and bring good news to the world. This is something we see in the gospel. At the very end of the gospel of Matthew, Jesus gathers his disciples together. He says, all authority under heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So God is on a mission, and he has called us, the church, to be on a mission as well. And that's what we're going to see today in Romans chapter 10. So let's read our text, and we'll pray. Romans 10, 14 to 21. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words the end of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long, I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this day. Father, thank you that we have the joy to come together to worship you. Father, to study your word, to seek you, God. Lord, we thank you that you have sought after us and found us, God. God, that you have rescued us from our sin. That you have brought forth, God, the good news of the gospel. God, thank you, Lord, that you call us to take part in that mission. So, Father, as we study your word today and we learn about that mission, as we learn about your great heart for humanity, Father, would you change our hearts, Lord? Holy Spirit, would you align our hearts and our thoughts and our will to that of yours, God? That what the Bible says, Lord, we would want to do that we would do it in the way that your word says, God, not in our own strength, in our own fleshly attempts, Father, but by your spirit, God. So Holy Spirit, we invite you now to speak to us, Lord. May we hear from you, God, and may we act, Lord, and obey. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So obviously we're, we're picking up halfway through a chapter. So I want to remind us of what our text was, where we left off and the wonderful news that Paul had mentioned to us. So Romans chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, 
Paul finished saying, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul puts forward a guarantee to us in that text, doesn't he? It's that this, that if we trust in the gospel, if we trust in who Jesus is, and we trust in what he has done for us, we will not be put to shame. In the end, we will be saved. As Christians, that is the hope that we cling to, the hope that someone else is going to save us. You see, we can't save ourselves. This is all very basic stuff, I know, but the reality is we can't save ourselves from our sin. No amount of good works, good things that you do will ever repay the fact that you have sinned against God. If you're trusting in yourself for salvation, if you're trusting in your own works, or if you're promoting a life of works to other people, then you are sharing bad news and you are hoping in bad news. And the gospel does not declare to us bad news. The Bible teaches us that there is a God, again, who brings forth good news, who brings forth the gospel. And so I don't want to move forward before we remind ourselves, what is the gospel that we believe in? What is that hope that we cling on to? What is the good news? Well, the good news starts with bad news, because the gospel declares that each, again, and every one of us is a sinner. Again, it doesn't matter how good you think you are. It doesn't matter how bad you think you are. It doesn't matter if you think you are better than other people. The Bible says that each and every one of us has sinned. It is consistently saying that. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have sinned. Sin simply means to miss the mark. That God has set forth this standard of perfection and that because of our very nature, no matter how much we try, we are going to miss that standard every time. We're never going to get bullseye. We're going to miss and veer from the mark. And because we are sinners, because we rebel, because we do what is wrong, because we want to do what is wrong, there is a consequence for our sin. And the Bible tells us that consequence is death. Romans 6, verse 23 tells us that the wages of our sin is death. It's what we deserve. The only thing that we are really entitled to as people, and we love that word in this country, entitlement, you're entitled to this and that. The only thing we're entitled to is an eternity separated from God. And the gospel teaches us that, that we cannot earn our way back to God. And so God had to make a way and come to us. That is the good news of the gospel. That's what we celebrated earlier on this week during Christmas, that God has come to do, that we, to do what we could not do, to save ourselves from our sin. So God sent his son Jesus into the world. Sin broke our relationship with God. Jesus came to fix it. Jesus came and lived a life and showed us who and what God is like. Jesus Christ went around living a life like no other, he healed people. He performed miracles. He welcomed the outcast and the lonely, the stranger, the exile. He reached out to the sinner. 
He taught people about God's love, yes, but he showed people God's love with his life. His life was a beautiful one, a sinless one. And we know the gospel teaches us that though Jesus never sinned, he died on the cross because of our sin. He died on the cross because he loves us. Romans 5.8 tells us that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Bible says that even though we deserve death, we deserve that penalty for our sin, Jesus has taken that penalty upon himself. It doesn't matter what you have done if you're in Christ. He has taken the penalty for your sin. He has died in your place. And three days later, he rose again from the grave, proving that sin had been conquered. Your sin has been dealt with on the cross. And this is the gospel that Paul wants us to confess and to believe and to hold onto. That as it says, Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. So I do want to encourage you, cling onto that gospel. Lay hold of it. Because it's our only hope. The gospel changes everything. Without it, we have nothing. Without it, we're wasting our time here this morning. And so cling to the gospel. Preach it to yourself each and every day that you have died with Christ and you have been raised with him. You are made new. So do we trust in the gospel? Have you trusted in the gospel first off? And if you have, are you still trusting in it? Are you laying hold of the cross as if it's the only hope you have, or are you wandering slightly away, you know, hand reaching away from it and clinging on to something else? Do you trust in the gospel? Not do you believe that there is a gospel, not do you acknowledge there are facts about Jesus, but do you actually trust in him? C.H. Spurgeon, um, a really famous English preacher in the 19th century, he wrote this about faith in the gospel. He said, we believe everything which the Lord Jesus has taught. And as Christians, we say, amen, we do believe what Jesus has said. But, he says, we must go a step further and trust him. It's not even enough to believe in him as being the Son of God and the anointed of the Lord. We must believe on him. The faith that saves is not believing certain truths, nor even believing that Jesus is a savior, but it is resting on him, depending on him, laying with all your weight on Christ as as to save you. Believe that he can save you. Believe that he will save you. At any rate, leave the whole matter of your salvation with him in unquestioning confidence. Depend upon him without fear as to your present and eternal salvation. This is the faith which saves the soul. So is that the faith that you have in Christ? Or is it this kind of wishy-washy acknowledgement of this gospel? Have you actually called upon the Lord to save you from your sin? As Christians, if you are a Christian, you have. And as Christians, it is our deepest desire to see other people call upon the Lord's name too, isn't it? You know, to see lost souls find Jesus. But do, do we have that desire is what the scripture would challenge us with this morning. You know, is it actually on our minds on a day-to-day basis that people are going to go to hell? That people are dying without Christ? 
you know, do we actually pray for those who are close to us? Do we actually tell them about Jesus? Is that our priority, or do we not really care? So we know God has a desire for people to be saved, but where does that desire for us come out of? But I want to share about you, with you Paul's desire to see where it came from. Paul's desire was that his people, the Israelites, would be saved. He says in Romans 10.1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, the people of Israel, is that they may be saved. So Paul had this deep burden to see his people saved. We ask, where did this come from? And we ask this because if you read the written accounts of Paul in the book of Acts, if you read from his own letters, his dealing with the Jewish people, they were a constant pain for him. They did not make it easy. You know, we read in Acts how the Jews mocked him, how they rejected his message, how they beat him, how they put him in prison, how they tried to kill him multiple times. And yet Paul says, I want these people who are trying to kill me to be saved. Where do you get that kind of love for people who see you as their enemy? It came from knowing this truth. Again, as God, our God, the Almighty Lord, is a bearer of good news. That God is an evangelist, that God wants to bring people to good news, even those who reject him, even people like Saul of Tarsus. See, Paul's love for his people did not just come from deep within himself, because if it came from within himself, it would have washed away after years and years of rejection. But Paul loved because God first loved him. And it was God's love that spurred him on to keep going when times got hard. That gave him a desire to see his people call upon the name of the Lord. Again, if we're honest, even though we wouldn't say it out loud to anybody, sometimes our lives don't look like the lives of people who want to see people saved. I know for me, when people reject not just the message, but when they reject me, you know, when people lie about me, when they abuse me, when they bully me, when they mock me, when they you know, try to ruin my reputation, the last thing very often in mind is, I want to spend eternity with you and Jesus in heaven. Very often we pray in the opposite thing, if we're honest. We think something worse. And so we can't force a heart of evangelistic love towards people by ourselves because our sinful nature will overcome us. Again, our heart will come from knowing that our God is a heart for the lost, that our God wants the people to see people saved, and God has ordained that people will be saved, and he's given us a way to see people saved. And our scriptures now, verses 14 and 15, show us how God wants to save people. So verse 14 and 15, it reads, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to be preaching unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So again, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul says in Romans 10. But you can't call on the name of the Lord if you don't believe in Jesus. It might seem pretty obvious, but why would you call on Jesus to save you if you don't believe the things about him in the first place? Right? 
In order to trust Jesus' work on the cross, you need to believe these facts about him. The fact that he died, that he rose again, you know, that he is in heaven. These are facts that God wants the world to know so that they may believe in his son and call upon his name. But in order to call, even believe in him, what happens? They have to hear about his name. And there's a logical flow of Paul does here. That if you want to call upon the Lord, you have to believe in the Lord. And to believe in the Lord, you have to actually know who he is. You, know, you can't just cry out to the sky and suddenly be saved. You need to call upon and believe and hear of Jesus. Now, for us in Ireland, specifically for us in Calvary Waterford, if you've been coming here for any length of time, you've 100% heard about Jesus. We love Jesus in this church. Jesus is the reason that we are here. Without him, we are just a social club. Jesus is the purpose that we are here today. We love hearing about Jesus. But even if you don't go to this church, if you live in Ireland, you've probably heard of Jesus. You hear about him in schools, there's statues around the country dedicated to him. You know, Christmas, Easter, they are public holidays here, and they are about Jesus. It's hard to escape even the concept of Jesus in Ireland. And so we have heard the Lord, but it's actually um, shocking enough, there are many, many, many people around the world who have never heard of the name of Jesus. And there's a Christian organization called the Joshua Project. Um, they are a missions organization that focuses specifically on reaching unreached people groups. And I was actually doing some research, there are, they estimate, 7,000 or more people groups who have never heard of the name of Jesus. So what that means is 41% of the world's population, in that 41%, less than 2% of them have heard or believed in Jesus. And how are they to believe in whom, in him, of whom they have never heard? So if they are to hear about Jesus, they need someone to tell them about Jesus. That's the last question of verse 14. How are they to hear without someone preaching? Now, obviously, we, we have Bibles. We can read about Jesus today. But the average person in the first century Roman world could not pick up a Bible and read about Jesus. Firstly, because, well, the Bible wasn't complete yet, so they wouldn't have been able to. But secondly, most people in the ancient world could not read or write. They were illiterate. They did not have the ability to read. That was a privilege that very few people held. And so if you wanted to get any message across in the ancient world, you didn't publish it in a newspaper because people couldn't read the news. You had what was called a herald. And heralds were vital to the ancient, ancient world. A herald, it was their job to go into the marketplaces, to go into the town squares and cry aloud any news they were given. If the emperor was going to make a, you know, a royal visit to a town, a herald would go before him preaching the news that the king is coming so that the people could make ready to welcome the emperor. And so Paul says that in order for a person to hear the gospel of Jesus, there needs to be someone proclaiming it out loud, the good news. It wouldn't have been enough to hand them a tract and leave them off. Not because there isn't any power in the written word of God, but because they couldn't read the written word of God. And so they had to, had to be proclaimed out loud. But in order for it to be proclaimed, a herald had to be sent. He had to be commissioned. 
Verse 15 says, how can they preach unless they are sent? See, a herald couldn't just go into a town square and start shouting off whatever he wanted. That was not his job. He was not the town gossip. He was the town crier. When he went somewhere, he didn't go of his own accord. He did not say what he wanted, but he would only go out upon the authority of another to declare the message that he was given. And he would declare it no more and no less. And it's the same with the proclamation of the gospel. Those who speak must be sent. And so that is God's order of bringing people to himself. Someone is sent, that person preaches, people hear, they believe, and they call upon the name of Jesus to save them. And that's how God in his divine will has ordained it. Because of his great love for the lost. He has decided that is how he's going to do it. But again, like with Isaiah, God does not do it by himself. God does it through the church. God has designed us, the church, to bring his gospel out to the world. It is the church who sends out people to preach the gospel. It is the church that wants to see people saved. It is the church that ensures people hear the gospel and reaches lost. It is the church that holds the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And we get the opportunity. God, for some reason, has chosen us to be involved in his beautiful work, to have those beautiful feet and bring the good news. You know, God could have done it whatever way he wanted. He could send angels to preach throughout all the world, and we might think, well, that's a better job than me because I'm a broken waste, waste of space, and an angel is a, an angel. God has chosen us to proclaim to the world the glory of Jesus. We get to take part in the very same work that God has done. In bringing the gospel to the world, we follow the example of our God. Because before we were ever sent into the world, John 3.16 tells us that God sent his son into the world, didn't he? And Jesus was sent by the Father to preach good news to the poor. And people followed him, they believed in him, they called upon him and became the church. And then from that, Jesus commissioned his church to do this very same thing that his father commissioned him to do, to go into the world and preach the good news. So again, we get to partake in God's mission to the world, to his beautiful work of sharing the gospel. And sometimes that makes us scared, you know, sharing the gospel with people. Very often because it's the response of the people, you know, we fear it. Or we take a certain amount of responsibility for how people respond. <clears throat> you know, people's response is not our responsibility. Our responsibility is to give them a chance to have a response. Let's move on. Verse 16, it reads, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So as we have seen, it is God's heart to save people from their sin. And he has made it possible that anyone can be saved by simply calling upon the name of Jesus. But then we ask, if it is so simple, what about his own people? If God has made it 
so, so easy to receive the gospel. Why has Israel missed the mark? And Paul tells us, as he addresses the nation of Israel once again for the rest of this chapter, is because they have not obeyed the gospel. Again, the gospel calls everyone to believe on Jesus. But clearly there are many people, including Jewish people, who do not obey that calling. And Israel, Paul will argue now, has no excuse for not believing the gospel. Because not only has God made it simple to receive salvation for them, he has warned them time and time again that people, that they would reject the gospel. We say, well, how does that make sense? Why would God warn them they're going to reject them? God warns them so that they may have an opportunity to respond ahead of time. And so Paul quotes here in verse 17, 16 rather, from the prophet Isaiah saying, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? That's taken from Isaiah chapter 53, which talks about the suffering servant of God, Jesus Christ, who would die for our sins. But not only does Isaiah 53 tell us of Jesus, it tells us of Jesus' people, you know, his nation, Israel, who would reject him. You know, the people of Israel, their calling was to believe and trust in the suffering servant, in the crucified king. But they failed in this, and instead of hearing the word of God by faith and receiving Christ, they reject it. And Paul will go on now from verse 18 to the end of the chapter, quoting prophet after prophet, showing that God has always been warning his people, you will reject me, so that they may have an opportunity to repent. So verse 18, Paul says, But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. So in answering the question, why did Israel not believe, Paul, he first, he dismisses a few arguments as to why he didn't believe. And the first is that they haven't heard the message. There is a possible that the Jewish people don't believe in Jesus as a Messiah because they have no idea that he was going to be the Messiah. Paul quotes Psalm 19 um, to, to dismiss this thought. Psalm 19 is a psalm that teaches us that the heavens, the universe, everything we see around us in nature is there to declare the glory of God. If you look at nature, you see nature declaring God's truth. Psalm 19 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out and through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. So Paul here is using biblical language, as we often do as Christians. We use the Bible to speak, and to talk about the church. He's saying that just as the universe is telling people of God's glory and his majesty, the church is now spreading God's message to mankind. That the church is now bringing the gospel and the good news of who God is to people, just as all creation does. And you know, whenever, wherever the gospel went in the first century, it went to the Jewish people. Paul made a habit of this. In the book of Acts, we see whenever Paul goes to a new town, the very first place he went to was a synagogue. He went straight to the Jews to tell his people the good news of Jesus Christ. And only when they rejected him did Paul go to the Gentiles. You see, the gospel was always meant for the Jew first and Gentile second. And so Paul made a habit of this. The church made a habit of this. And Paul says, 
Yes, the Jewish people have heard the good news, so they are without excuse. Now, what's the next argument of Paul? In verse 19, is that, well, did the Jewish people simply not understand the good news that they have heard? Verse 19 reads, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So again, it's very possible to hear something without understanding, isn't it? If you come up to me after service and you speak a language that isn't English, or maybe a really, really basic version of French or German, I'm not going to understand you. I'm going to hear you. and I, I love hearing foreign language, but I don't, I don't have a clue what you're on about. I'll smile and go, uh-huh, uh-huh. And that's it, because I don't know what you're saying. It's very possible to hear something and not have a clue what's being said. And so is it ignorance on Israel's part? Is it that they just didn't understand the good news that was brought to them? Again, Paul says no, and to back this up, he quotes from Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. That verse in quotation, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation, that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, um, the Song of Moses. It's near the very end of Moses' life, and he's singing the song to God. And in this song, he tells, he prophesies of the people of Israel's rejection of God. Moses says that they would abandon the Lord for false gods. And in response, God would abandon them for another nation to provoke them, to make them want to come back. Again, the verse Paul quotes says this, they have made me jealous of what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. So notice there in Deuteronomy, that the type of nation that God is going to go after, the type of people. He says it is a foolish nation. That word foolish can be translated as a nation without knowledge or understanding of God. And so the implication is, if God is going to go after a nation that has no understanding, then Israel is a nation that does have understanding. God's people do know the things of God. They have heard and they have recognized what it is. And so Paul says, ignorance is not an excuse for the Jewish people. And so we ask, why is it that Israel has not obeyed the gospel? Why do we not see Jewish people all around the world, you know, the vast majority of them believing in Jesus. Paul says it is because they are stubborn. They are willingly ignorant of the things of God. They, like many people, are choosing not to accept Jesus. They have heard, they have understood, but they are choosing to reject it. And we see this because in our last few verses, how God deals with Jews and Gentiles when it comes to salvation and repentance. In verses 20 and 21, God, uh, Paul quotes the prophet Isaiah saying, Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So let's look first at how God deals with Gentiles. A Gentile is someone who's not a Jew. I am a Gentile. If you're not a Jewish person, you are a Gentile too. So verse 20, in talking about the Gentiles, Paul here is quoting from the book of Isaiah, 
chapter 65, where it reads, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So God tells us here that when it comes to knowing him, Gentiles were completely in the dark. He describes us as the people who don't seek after God, who couldn't really care about God, who do not ask for him, who have no dealings with him whatsoever. So how does God deal with this kind of people who are just kind of wandering off, doing their own thing, you know, blissfully unaware that he's even there? Again, our God is an evangelist. Our God is a God of the gospel. Our God is one who brings good news, and so God says he comes to them. God reverses the roles when it comes to humanity. The Gentiles did not seek after God, so God allows himself to be found by them. You know, it's like he just jumps in front of them and says, here I am, do you want to be my people? And they somehow say yes. And that's how God deals with Gentiles in a very basic way. He says, here I am, and they accept him. Because he has sought after them first. See, our God is God who came to seek and to save the lost those who are in darkness. And this is the great of God, the grace of God, that he takes the initiative in our lives, that he makes himself known to us, and he goes about saving people. I know that's my story. I did not care for the things of God. I did not seek after God. I wanted to destroy the idea of Christianity. And yet God chose to reveal himself to me and show me his beauty. For no other reason and the fact that he loved me and gave his son to die for me. And that's true for every Gentile believer here this morning. That God loves you and he chose to reveal himself to you. Not because of you, but because he loves you. But that's how God deals with Jew, Gentiles. How does he deal with the Jewish people? How does he deal with his own people? Well, he says in verse 20, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. So what's the Lord saying here? You know, he isn't simply coming up to, again, a random child saying, hi, I am the Lord. Do you want to be my child? I want to be your father. That's what he does with Gentiles. What God is saying here is that Israel is his child, and all day long he has his hands stretched out towards his children, begging them to come to him, and they will not. I know many of us in the room are parents. If you're a parent, you know how this feels. If you're not a parent, ask your parents how this feels. You know, my, my Nora, my oldest child, you know, she's my little sweetheart. She's an angel. But when she wakes up from a nap, she is the most emotional wreck you will ever meet. You know, I'll be downstairs, I'll hear her wake up, and I'll come up to her into the room. I'll say, hi, baby, daddy's here. And she will just, in a second, go from a happy child to this snotty, teary, red-faced, angry little mess. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? And you know, I'm, I'm there and I'm looking at her and I can only, I want to pick her up, I want to hug her, I want to make her feel better. But if I come close to her, the arms start flying, the legs start kicking, the scratches happen, and she's freaking out at me. And all I can do is sit there with my arms open and say, Nora, come here, daddy loves you, come here. 
And I stay coming here, and she says, no, 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 no. And that's all you'll hear for 20 minutes is no. And it's heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking, because I love my little girl. Now, eventually, because obviously she's here and not in her room, um, she calms down, and she becomes happy again, and I give her a hug, and she's laughing, and things are however they are meant to be. I am with my child again. But if that heartbreak, you know, for 15 minutes is this agonizing for me, how much greater is the pain that the Lord feels that he is holding out his arms to his children and they won't come to him? John Stott, in his commentary in Romans, says, puts it like this. He says, like a parent inviting a child to come home, offering a hug and a kiss and promising a welcome, so God has opened and stretched out his arms to his people and has kept them continuously outstretched all day long, pleading with them to return, but he has received no response. Again, our God is the God who is an evangelist. Our God is a God who is a God of love, who loves the lost. How great must his love be if, if towards his people, if his arms, even today, are still outstretched to the nation of Israel, saying, come back to me. How great is his burden for the lost. Again, we said at the very start, Jesus has commissioned us to go into the world to preach good news to the poor, to preach liberty to the captives, you know, to bind up the brokenhearted, to declare the year of the Lord's favor, to preach the gospel. And this is a command that we must obey as Christians. But again, without the right motivation, without the right heart, we will fall flat in our faces. We will never fulfill the Great Commission. And, you know, I'm not going to stop here and say, you have to go out and do it because you're a Christian. Because no amount of guilt, no amount of pity will make you want to reach the nations. It will never motivate you to love your enemies when they slap you in the face. Guys, it is love of God towards his people and towards this world shown in the cross of Christ that spurs us on, that will motivate us to reach the nations. So I am going to tell you our calling is to bring that gospel to this world. Our calling is to share the good news to the people of Waterford in Ireland, Europe and the rest of this world, but we're not doing it because Danny told you to do so. We're not doing it because you feel bad. We're doing it because of the love of God. And so rest in his love. Embrace his love. And you're not only going to love Jesus, you will love the things he loves, and you will go forth and obey him. So we're going to pray. We're going to go into a time of worship now, as you do. Um, it's a time to respond to what the Lord is doing in our lives. You know, for some of us, evangelism is something that's not on our minds. And I'm the first to admit that, that very often my heart is not towards telling people the truth, either because I'm lazy or selfish or hateful. And maybe that's you too, maybe not to those extremes. But we need to recognize that our hearts need to be ones that are towards the thing that God loves, which is reaching the lost. So if you're struggling with that, I encourage you to invite the Holy Spirit to change your heart towards that to ask him to bring you to a place where you love the lost because of Jesus' love for you. 
You know, you might be here for the first time, you might not be saved, you might not be sure if you're a Christian. And God has, is seeking after you. God wants to know you. He wants to be able to say that you have been found by him. And all you need to do is call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. You know, church, we have been grafted into Israel. You know, we are part of God's people. How often are we, those stubborn children, who refuse to come into the Lord's arms? You know, how often does, you know, you might be stuck in sin today. You might be feeling you're in a place that you can't get out of. That, you know, your sin is constantly cutting you off from God. That he doesn't want you. And God's image towards you is not this, it's this. Come to me. And so I just want to encourage you, if you are in the depths of despair and sin this morning, God loves you. God wants you to lay it down at the feet of Jesus. So let's pray, let's invite him to work in our hearts and the worship team is going to come up. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your truths. Thank you that you love us, God, that your arms are outstretched to us, God, every moment of every day. There is nothing, God, that we can do to make you stop loving us. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for the liberation that we have in knowing you. God, if anyone here is feeling condemned, Lord, would you remind them of your great love that you showed in the cross, Lord? May they come to the cross, God. God, give us a heart for the lost as if you have a heart for us. Lord, change us by your love. Meet us where we're at, God. May we go from this place, God, ready to do your work. With the Holy Spirit, we need your help. We invite you here now to work in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.